Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're back talking about battery metal and the challenge of meeting the forecasted demand over the next decade and beyond. What are the potential solutions and opportunities from technology to policy to markets? What does this mean for the commodity trading world, producers, and consumers? Our guest is Chris Berry. Chris is the president and founder of House Mountain Partners, a battery metals strategic advisory firm based in D.C. Chris has a long history in finance and investing, and over the last 10 years has worked with clients to unwind the opportunity and threats in the battery metals sector. As always, if you enjoy the episode, please leave us a positive review. It really helps support the show and enables us to continue to find great guests. Chris, thanks for joining. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity. So there's lots of discussion in the media. We've covered ourselves on a number of episodes. The disconnect between potential future demand for a whole slew of, of critical metals, including those that goes into, go into batteries, but across modern technology. And the supply side, not only the, the supply of, of those raw materials, but also their location and the politics involved in that and so forth. So really, I guess we're discussing today what the various potential solutions might be and therefore what the opportunities might be for the commodity sector at large. Before we dig into the solutions and where they might come from, can you just frame up for us which metals, which materials are most prevalent in this discussion and those most focused on by your clients and the broader supply chain? Sure. Well, I think it's maybe thankfully a relatively short list. Obviously, lithium, cobalt, graphite, copper, nickel, and manganese are are the big six. Some people would throw aluminum in there as well. I do think what makes this opportunity unique is that you really have to sort of look at and diagnose each one of these metals individually from a supply and demand perspective. Because, for example, the lithium market at 375,000 tons a year in size today is growing at 20% a year from a demand perspective. It is a specialty chemical as opposed to a commodity, in my opinion. And you sort of have to compare and contrast that against something like copper, which is obviously much larger, much more liquid, much deeper, but is not growing at 20% a year. Certainly will be affected by, by battery growth going forward or EV growth going forward. But nevertheless, those are sort of the big six that I have really focused on and I think are, are the important ones going forward. We've covered lithium. You know, it's a relatively prevalent story. Obviously, copper is a commodity that uh, all of our listeners will be familiar with. Where does graphite, manganese, where do they fit into that picture? Can you just dig into those a little bit? Graphite is its own sort of case because when you think about the battery, you've got the cathode and the anode. And of course, the cathode, I think, gets a lot of attention because that is where the lithium, the cobalt, the copper, some of the other metals are really focused. The anode, at least today, is dedicated or dominated by graphite. And graphite really comes uh, primarily from two sources with respect to battery development, natural and synthetic. What makes graphite unique is the fact that the Chinese basically dominate the supply chain. 
not so much from a production perspective, although they do produce the bulk of the world's natural graphite. They actually produce 100% of what's called spheroided natural graphite. So graphite that is effectively shaped appropriately to be placed in an anode. And so that there is a challenge here with respect to resource dependency. It goes well beyond lithium and, and cobalt and copper. To your point, I think the metals that kind of get all of the front page attention in the newspapers. Graphite is an interesting one for the reasons that I just mentioned. There's also something interesting going on on the anode side of the battery that perhaps we can get into over the course of this conversation. And it has to do with technological development of batteries. The holy grail for a lithium ion battery is, is increasing energy density while minimizing the use of raw materials and also trying to minimize the weight of the battery. And so while at the same time maintaining safety, I should say, that's very important. And so, you know, on the anode side of the battery in particular, what you're starting to see is a great deal of, of R&D and development into what are called solid state lithium ion batteries. At risk of simplifying this, just sort of in the interest of time, get to the real benefits of solid state. A solid state battery does not use graphite, either natural or synthetic, in the anode. It uses lithium metal. So again, perhaps a maybe potentially bullish call for, for lithium out over the longer term. But you are starting to see situations where battery manufacturers, anode manufacturers, everybody along the supply chain is trying to balance the growth here with, again, safety and increasing energy density. One of the ways to do that is to utilize lithium metal in the anode in place of graphite. And so that is one, I guess, tech trend to keep in, uh, keep in mind or keep your eye on. There are companies out there that are probably very familiar to a lot of the listeners of this podcast. One is, of course, QuantumScape, really trying to pioneer EV, or I should say, solid state lithium ion battery demand. But that's really, I, you know, kind of a short overview or case, if you will, of graphite and its use in the anode. I'll just say one other thing. There is kind of a bridge here to get from where we are today to solid state. And what you're finding is that a lot of companies, for example, Tesla, will effectively dope or add silicon into the anode of the lithium ion battery. And what that effectively does is increases the energy density by a pretty, pretty reasonable amount. So that is kind of the here and now for where we are with graphite and the battery. I wouldn't say there's a bearish case to be made for graphite because these gigafactories are being built. They will utilize graphites in the anode for a number of years going forward. But um, there is, there are, I should say, changes afoot. And that's something I think you want to be aware of. Which plays into some of the challenges, right? You're also on a on a shifting landscape when it comes to the technology piece and, and where you know investors feel comfortable putting their the dollars to work when you every week the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, you know, has a different battery in its business section. Very quickly, manganese. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ma manganese is something I would say going forward, what you are likely to see is less manganese used in a battery just in terms of the amount of, of manganese going forward. What, what we're seeing in terms of, again, those energy dense chemistries that are utilized for, for mobility or for automotive, which is what we're sort of focusing on right now. The two predominant chemistries there are called NCA for nickel cobalt aluminum and NMC for nickel manganese cobalt. Within nickel manganese cobalt, you have different weights, if you will, of the nickel 
the manganese and the cobalt in the battery. And the industry over the last few years actually has been transitioning from what's known as NMC 111, which is equal weights of the nickel, manganese, and cobalt in the cathode to NMC 811 or NMC 9.5.5. So, you know, using less cobalt because that's really a geopolitical issue more than anything else. But also manganese are looking at a resource dependence issue with respect to the Chinese owning a lot of that supply chain, number one. And, you know, look, I think number two, Volkswagen, there are companies that have talked about maintaining manganese in the batteries that they use. But I think what's likely to happen is you'll probably, generally speaking, this is somewhat controversial, but you'll be using less manganese per battery, but you're still going to see growth in the market overall. Because of course, as I mentioned before, each one of these metals needs to be viewed sort of individually. Manganese is of course very important for the steel industry globally. So you sort of have to keep an eye on what's going on there as well as its potential use in the battery business. I would say the battery business is is additive to manganese demand going forward, but by no means is it the only sort of game in town. Yeah. So when you go back to, it seems like all roads lead to China when it comes to these metals, but when you look at those six, granted, they all need to be treated individually, but can you just diagnose, if you'd like, you know, the, the main reasons behind the concern over meeting the world's demand for these metals? Sure. Well, I think part of the issue is the move towards decarbonization and electrification globally is being driven, if that's the right way to maybe pardon the pun there, but pushed forward by governments. Okay. Governments are effectively telling private industry, listen, this is the way we are going to go. We're going to electrify transport, electrify energy storage. I really see that as a, as a paradox. I call it the paradox of green growth. And fundamentally, what that really means is we're going to be using much more, many, many more tons of all of these raw materials, all of these metals, as opposed to less. So recycling or some technologies perhaps we can get into over the course of the podcast will help plug any potential structural gap between supply and demand. But by no means will they solve the problem. We are going to need more raw material period, end of story. And the challenge, Paul, to get to your question specifically is that almost anywhere in the world, not just here in the United States or the, you know, the EU or anywhere, but you're looking at a 10-year slog, if you will, or a 10-year window to discover, explore, develop, fund, and build a new mine, whether or not that's lithium or copper or Again, any of the big six that I mentioned before. So you you have this mismatch along the decarbonization supply chain, in my view, where, you know, it's going to take you 10 years to bring Greenfield's supply online, but you could theoretically build a cathode facility, you know, an anode facility, a gigafactory, for lack of a better phrase. You could build a gigafactory in, I don't know, 36 months, again, depending upon where you are globally. So you can't have this situation where, the downstream portion of the supply chain is funded and built and ready to go, but have to wait a number of years for your raw materials. And so that's the fundamental issue right now. And I think that's what, you know, one of the things that makes the current cycle different from cycles in the past is that, you know, this isn't just investors or hedge funds kind of sniffing out an opportunity. Governments, industries across the spectrum have woken up to the fact that, yeah, we're looking at some pretty significant 
raw material shortages uh, throughout this decade unless a lot more funding comes into the upstream portion of the supply chain pretty soon. But even if that funding came, you're still not going to solve the problem in the sense that there are just these hard and fast lead times to setting up the, the mining operation and then the refining operation. And then the other issue, of course, is that a lot of the as I understand, at least, a lot of the, the know-how, the technology, especially in the refining portion of the value chain, is, is, is not necessarily dispersed, right? It's very much concentrated in China and a couple of other locations. That's correct. And again, you know, you could sort of go down the list and say, I would say the, the intellectual firepower, if you will, for something like rare earths, rare earth elements, magnet making, is concentrated in China. As an example, there's a fair amount in Japan as well which is, of course, an ally of ours here in the West. But yes, the the IP, that intellectual firepower, is really focused in China. And again, that's another issue. You cannot rush the building of a mine. You cannot rush the building of a cathode facility for a number of, of reasons we can get into. As I mentioned before, just on the lithium side, each one of these projects is unique. And that goes beyond grade and scale and tonnage and all the traditional mining metrics. I mean, a lithium project is really a chemical manufacturing facility. It's not a traditional mine. Okay. And that's, there's, that's debatable, sure, depending upon the asset you're looking at. But nevertheless, you, you can't really rush it. We saw during the last cycle, say 2015 to about 2018, just as an example, there were three operating lithium mines in Australia. That jumped to six, and I think a seventh hard rock was about to come on stream just as the market turned and the bottom fell out of everything. But, you know, the point is that it wasn't that difficult for, you know, the three to ramp up their capacity. It all, all of that material, though, went into China, okay, to be processed. And quite frankly, because there's so much growth there in the lithium ion battery business, what goes into China is probably going to stay in China. Why are we in this situation? I mean, there's been demand for batteries, you know, over the last 20 years from all variety of directions. I know there's an order of magnitude different when it comes to fueling the, the energy transition. But what are the main reasons that supply has been limited? There hasn't been this much investment. There hasn't been the foresight there. And also, that you know, we, we have covered it in previous episodes, but you've got this concentration in China. Can you tease apart kind of how this has suddenly sprung up and is now a very real and imminent issue, certainly for governments in the West trying to support energy transition? Yeah, I think this is a, to your point, it's a, it's a larger conversation. It's relatively philosophical too. I think a lot of the reason that we find ourselves in the position we find ourselves in today with respect to resource dependence has to do with globalization and this sort of outsourcing, if you will, of manufacturing bases to lower cost locations. Of course, I'm talking about China. You know, I'm not some left-wing protester here. I'm simply offering an opinion on, on what got us to this point. So we in the West have chased the lowest cost of production for years, decades, if you will. And that's sort of one of the main reasons, again, at a very high level, why I think we find ourselves where we are today. It took us 40 years to get into this situation, and um, I'm not saying it's going to take us 40 years to get out, but this is there's no sort of easy overnight fix. So I think it is going to take some sort of a combination of both public and private sector incentives, if you will, to really try and right the ship. I, I do think that you know one of the things that 
makes this current investment cycle, let's just call it the current battery metals cycle, different from uh, the two or three that I have seen in previous iterations in my career is, of course, the focus on the supply chain. I would say I think maybe the death of globalization is is premature. I could certainly see a situation where you know you have a more regionalized supply chain structure. So a supply chain dedicated to the European Union, a supply chain dedicated to say North America, one perhaps in Asia. But I just think actually costs are going to get out of hand if you were just to do something in the United States or just do something in Canada or just in a specific country in Europe. So I like to speak in in uh, in sports analogies. And so I like to think that the, the battery metal supply chain is kind of a jump ball right now for any basketball fans listening to the podcast. We don't really know how things are going to land, but I think that there is a relatively clear view, certainly from from the standpoint of government in terms of what we need to do to rebuild the supply chains. It's just a question of generating the funding or generating the capital and then, of course, allocating it appropriately and, and in time. Perfect. So just before we move into, I guess, the policies and then what organizations themselves can do and what investors and traders can therefore do as well, the opportunity, so to speak, is this recognized as a almost existential threat by OEMs? If so, how long? And, and is this the front of, of every agenda of uh, every board meeting among your clients? It is. Is it an existential threat? I think, I think look, hyperbole aside, it's, it probably is. You have legacy automotive manufacturers that are, again, being forced not just by governments necessarily, but by their customers in particular to take decarbonization and take electrification and ESG a lot more seriously than they have in the past. And I don't mean to impugn any of the motives of the legacy OEMs out there, but the fact of the matter is that just in terms of supply chain build out and approaching the market, a company like Tesla that only sells electric vehicles, and you know, we can say what we want to say about the CEO and the the history there of how they've sort of dealt with the capital markets, but nevertheless, I think Tesla has proven to the rest of the OAM business that this is a model that can work. And so I think what has happened is partially because of Tesla's success and also Chinese success, which is its own kind of ecosystem. Uh, the rest of the automotive market has been pulled kicking and screaming, for lack of a better phrase, into this electrification push. And so, you know, I think it's it's a really, quite frankly, a tenuous, tense time for any of these legacy OEMs. I'm sure the board meetings that are happening are eliciting a lot of head scratching with respect in particular to raw material supply and availability. We haven't, or I haven't seen too much from the OEM perspective, the Western OEM perspective, really locking up more than just a couple of years of supply of select battery metals. And so, you know, if your view on electrification is that, yes, we are going to 10, 15, 20, 25, 30% EV penetration through the end of this decade and into the 2030s, just the way automotive cycles work. And also, as I mentioned, the time it takes to build out these supply chains. These, these OEMs need to be building out this infrastructure today, okay? They cannot wait any longer. Again, I think that is one of the differences that I see in the current cycle relative to past cycles. The focus on ESG, the focus on electrification, and for the first time ever, I think the legacy OEMs are, are getting serious about it. 
and there's an equivalent story going on in the power generation world where storage plays a key part in solving for intermittency and other issues around renewables. So it's not just an OEM story, right? Okay, so let's go into the solutions and the opportunities. So the, the first one is policy. Can you talk about that? Where does policy sit in this from a global perspective and then also a more regional and country perspective? Yeah, I think governments, generally speaking, if you look, just look at, for example, the European Union, they have chosen a carrot and stick approach, the carrot being incentives for consumers to purchase electric vehicles, tax rebates, things like that. And of course, the stick is focused squarely on the automotive manufacturers themselves, where you know, if you if you produce an internal combustion engine car and it and it um, emits more than a certain amount of CO2 kilograms of CO2 per kilometer driven, you're going to start getting fined. So they have a a financial a monetary incentive to electrify their fleets. Over here in the United States, part of the infrastructure that's being kicked around in Congress, the infrastructure debate, if you will, or Biden's Build Back Better process or not his process, maybe his his build back better legislation would be a better way to put it. Part of that involves a twelve and a half thousand US dollar incentive for consumers to purchase electric vehicles that are A, made by union labor, B, per, made in the United States, and of course, C, utilize a battery made in the United States. And so, you know, the first two parts of that, I think, are are potentially realistic union labor and and having an EV at least in large part produced in the United States, but producing the battery at any kind of scale for the automotive market here in the US is going to be challenging in the next couple of years. Okay. China again is its own sort of ecosystem. I mean the country has has focused and encouraged electrification through a number of different means. And, you know, look, you're starting to see it certainly in, in the European Union and in China, just in terms of the percentage of sales on a monthly basis that are electrified relative to, say, diesel or traditional internal combustion engine. They're ticking up to, say, 9, 10, 11, 12 percent of, of monthly sales. And so that trajectory is what you want to focus on, because, again, that's consumers saying, hey, listen, this is the direction we want to go. And that's one of the, I think, the biggest signal that the OEMs really need to continue to make this investment. One other thing I would just sort of add there is if you, the way I sort of look at, at I guess, the EV thesis is that it's really a three-way race right now in terms of raw material security, in terms of, to your point, Paul, intellectual property and, and intellectual sort of firepower it's a three-way race between China, the EU, and the United States, or let's just say North America more broadly. And, you know, that is much different from what we saw in previous cycles, where it was China kind of running away with everything, pushing the electrification thesis. And, you know, maybe the EU, maybe North America, maybe the US catches up. Now, I'm actually pretty impressed by what I see over in the European Union. They have a, in my view, a very clear strategy around electrification, around what they call their battery directive. Doesn't mean it's going to be any easier to build it out, but at least there's a very clear pathway for companies and countries based in the EU around electrification. So it's interesting. I mean, look, competition creates innovation or fosters innovation. And so I'm actually glad to sort of see, I think, that difference in this current cycle. So and I want to come on to that 
the technology piece, you know, that could solve for, to some extent as well. But ultimately, if I understand it right, you're still coming back to this issue of the raw material and the refining of that, you know, the chemical processes around those raw materials that still sits outside for the most part of the EU, outside of North America. Is there a more nuanced debate starting to happen that would enable for more mining, re-onshoring some of those <clears throat> less desirable from an environmental impact industries? Because on balance overall, it's better that that is done locally in the broader challenge of CO2 compared to environmental degradation. I mean, how can we? how can Europe and the US start to meet those requirements of the, the Biden's build back, build back Better plan, <laughs> you know, without that piece. It's going to be very pro problematic, I would argue, to build any kind of a self-sufficient or, you know, what are the buzzwords from 2020 and 2021, like resilient and robust supply chain. It's going to be very difficult to do that without access to the raw materials. And look, for those of you, I'm sure there are a lot of people on this listening to this podcast and know that lithium and cobalt and the metals that we're talking about today in and of themselves are not rare in the Earth's crust. Okay, There's decades of supply, even at, at elevated usage rates or demand rates that we're seeing now. Again, the challenge becomes how do we get rid of the whole, or I shouldn't say get rid of, how do we address this NIMBY argument, not in my backyard? You know, just in the EU, you've seen pushback against lithium in Portugal. I just read a story this morning about Rio Tinto wanting to push forward to open a lithium mine in Serbia, and they've got thousands of people in the streets protesting this. Again, it's an article, you know, I'm sure there's nuance there, but nevertheless, my point is that we all want clean air and, and you know, the greening of the economy. But again, the paradox, as I mentioned before, is that this comes at a cost. Okay, and that cost is what I would call relative self-sufficiency of all aspects of the supply chain. And that's why I think a more regionalized approach, for example, a North American supply chain would would make more sense. And you've seen the Biden administration actually here in the U.S. actually address that and say for a, you know, for the raw material aspect of this this battery supply chain, we want to work more closely with our allies. And, you know, you can read between the lines there. And what he's effectively saying is that we want resources, we want to utilize resources that are perhaps mined and refined in Canada or Chile or, you know, other other countries like that. You know, the problem here, Paul, is that when we talk about this shift, right, around decarbonization or green growth, it's been interesting, you know, there's another new buzzword here in 2021 called greenflation. OK, this is actually a real threat, I would argue, to the battery business and building out supply chains. Just in the last year, lithium, battery grade lithium carbonate, all right, is increased, has increased in price by 290 percent. Nickel is up 20 percent. Cobalt is up 116 percent. Copper is up 23 percent. Oil, West Texas Intermediate, 53%, aluminum, 30%. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so one of the, I think, real tailwinds for growth and for the greening of the economy has been this idea, not this idea, this fact that year over year for literally like the last 20 years, the price of a lithium ion battery has fallen, fallen anywhere from eight to maybe 12% per year in terms of dollars per kilowatt hour. And so that's been a pretty pretty reliable tailwind. But the problem 
comes, well, what happens when that stalls out or when that stops? What do you do? Does government increase subsidies? How do you continue to encourage electrification when the price of a battery, which is 30% of the cost of a car, is not falling anymore? And so I think for the first time next year in 2022, what we're going to see is actually a stalling out battery prices. And so the key there, just coming back to your original question, how do you mitigate that? How do you get around it? Again, it's all about investment in technology, battery technology. I talked earlier about solid state on the anode side. I talked, I haven't talked earlier, but there's a lot going on in the cathode business as well to try to either utilize different formulations of materials or perhaps lower grade materials to increase performance and the power of the battery overall. So, you know, I just think, look, we're never coming back also to the globalization question that we addressed earlier. We're never going to compete with China, okay, in terms of the lowest cost of production. So let's not, let's not try. I don't mean to throw in the towel necessarily, but let's focus on innovation. Let's create products around the battery business, around the EV business that allow us to compete and win at a low cost from that perspective. I really think out over the next 10 years, the innovation in battery design and battery technology is going to create a lot more winners. Yeah, I want to come back to that. Just one final question on the policy side. Are you, you know, in terms of advice to your clients, are we seeing miners, manufacturers, whatever it might be, building up their government relations functions because this is the time to get in there and start trying to address incentives, tax breaks, whatever it might be to enable that investment in further up the supply chain for these batteries. Are you seeing that? Are you advising that? What should organizations be thinking about when it comes to this policy piece? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I'm based here in Washington, D.C., so I do tend to have my ear close to the ground with respect to policy. Certainly, there are ideas and directives coming out of the White House, but the Department of Energy, the Department of Defense, they are all doing their own part to encourage innovation along the supply chain and encourage the build out of the supply chain. Again, a lot of this is rooted in ESG and decarbonization. And so, again, one of the differences with this current cycle relative to cycles of the past is that the mining companies, there's no sort of delicate way to say this, they're taking ESG a lot more seriously than they have in years past, I would argue, because there is an opportunity there. Governments, again, across the spectrum, I think, are not so much mandating it, but providing a backdrop or sort of a roadmap to allow these companies to shift and adjust their business models. I mean, you've, you've seen companies, I mentioned Rio Tinto getting into lithium. I mean, a lot of these major mining companies who didn't really, quite frankly, ever used to focus on the battery metals have now shifted their tune. And it's because there's an opportunity and it's also because governments are sending signals to them about the way that they're going to have to shift their business to, to survive and generate returns. And it's also, we discussed this offline, coming with a whole package solution to your clients and you know those miners getting further downstream. We've definitely seen that trend of rather than just well building marketing and trading businesses. And we'll come back to trading. Okay, so moving on to technology, you can innovate your way to that higher energy density using less materials. That's fantastic. 
But that also poses a challenge from an investment standpoint as well for these raw material producers if you're going to get quickly changing chemistry within batteries. What's your take on this? Could we have a radically different battery in 10 years? Is it still going to be lithium-based? And and how do you, as a raw material producer, trader, navigate this very uncertain or potentially very uncertain landscape? Yeah, I think just to, to make kind of a blanket statement from the start, I don't see anything supplanting lithium ion in mobility for the next 10 to 15 years are likely to see is, as I mentioned before, solid state. So changes to the chemistry of the anode or chemistry of within the cathode to, again, increase energy density, perhaps minimize reliance on certain raw materials or to decrease the weight of the battery overall. But lithium ion in particular, you know, lithium is the lightest of all metals. It holds a charge and it's got a 30 plus year track record of safety which is something that I think is oftentimes overlooked. I mean, batteries are, they can be dangerous materials if they overheat and explode. Now, on the energy storage side, you sort of, we alluded to it earlier, grid-scale energy storage, it's not really lithium, lithium ion as the sole winner, in my view. There's a lot more competition over there. I spend a lot of time actually trying to understand and watch the what's called the vanadium redox battery market. And these are effectively very large batteries that are used for energy storage. The vanadium is stored in electrolyte. It is infinitely recyclable and has a much, I guess, more robust charge cycle, if you will, going from 0% to 100% charge, then back and forth for thousands of cycles, which lithium ion cannot match. You do sacrifice energy density to a certain degree with respect to vanadium redox, but it is a much more suitable or perhaps a better suited storage medium for, again, large scale grid scale energy storage relative to lithium ion. And again, you know, we can sort of go down the list. There's zinc air. There's there's lots, lots of potential choices down there. But on the energy storage side, but I would be paying particularly close attention to what's happening in the vanadium redox battery market, because I do think that's a not even longer term, a near term, pretty formidable competitor to lithium ion on the energy storage side. And again, to sort of come back to your original question about how do investors deal with the fact that battery chemistry can change? This is one of the primary reasons that, you know, in my career, I've seen a lot of generalist investors shy away from the battery business It's because the markets are too small, opaque pricing. I mean, there are a lot of different reasons. And that question that you just sort of brought up happens. I still get it all the time, which is how do you really know in 10 years that lithium ion is the winner? Again, it will grow and evolve. And again, that's why I think you as an investor, regardless of where you are in the as a stakeholder, really need to look at each one of these metals and minerals individually to come up with an investment case, you know, long, short, neutral, whatever it is, because they are they are very nuanced. So it just to my point earlier, I think that technology focusing on these battery technologies is is a really really important part of your your investment arsenal going forward. Obviously, there's policy solutions at the at the regional level, at the governmental level, and the need for organizations to engage and follow those. Technology, I think there's quite a clear statement that 
at least when it comes to cars, it's lithium. But as you say, there's a, a much more broader opportunity of different types of batteries on that large scale energy storage side, which is, I think, positive to hear. What are the market solutions? And maybe you can just frame up for us at the moment, because some of these metals are clearly traded, copper, cobalt, etc. Others are not, or at least are, you know, they're locked up in long term supply contracts. Those contracts are pretty immutable sometimes. Where does traditional response to these imbalances of demand supply, which is when middlemen, merchants, traders, producers, consumers start to set up more sophisticated trading and marketing operations. Does that have a role in this? And I appreciate that maybe that might be different for each one. Yeah, I think, again, the the opacity, if that's the right word, of, for example, the lithium market or the cobalt market, not to mention the fact that both of those markets in particular are very concentrated from a producer perspective, has kept a lot of people, a lot of investors out of the space. But you sort of can't ignore the returns anymore. And you can't ignore this move towards decarbonization and the role of these niche metals, these minor metals in it. I think that the need for more transparency across, again, it always comes back to lithium, but you could make it make the case for vanadium, right? The need for more transparency across these smaller opaque markets is absolutely crucial because it's an oligopoly. You know, lithium historically was growing at say 6% a year from a demand perspective, very healthy on the back of, you know, electronics and, and your phone and your laptop and all that kind of stuff. But now that to your point earlier, you talked about an order of magnitude, larger growth, the demand for transparency has only grown louder. That drumbeat for transparency, I think, has only grown louder from investors. And not again, not just sort of hedge funds trying to scratch their heads and figure out well, what exactly is going on, but much larger players, oil and gas companies looking at this market, chemicals companies looking at this market, private equity. I mean, what I like to call patient capital. That is another difference in the current investment cycle, I would argue, the current battery metals investment cycle today relative to cycles of the year of years past. It's that companies that traditionally would not sniff around in the battery metal space are now not only sniffing around, but making significant investments. And for more of that to happen, for more capital to come in, you need more pricing pricing transparency. That is starting to happen with lithium and cobalt in particular, uh, with futures contracts on the LME and the CME. It's very early days. I don't mean to you know imply that, okay, problem solved and let's move on. There's not much liquidity there yet, but we're moving in the right direction in that respect. One other thing I would I would just say is on the lithium side, company Pilbara Minerals in Australia has actually instituted an auction system for the hard rock spodumene that they produce. And one of the really interesting, I guess, byproducts of all of that is they make the price, the winning bid for their material publicly available. And that, I think, has gone a long way in terms of injecting a fair amount of confidence and pricing transparency into the lithium market overall. Again, you know, as we mentioned before, lithium up 290% in the last 12 months, I mean, that's, it's not going to, not going to keep going. Obviously there will be some sort of a correction or a shift. I mean, again, all of these cycles begin and end differently, but the pricing 
transparency, I think, will help to moderate those prices because it'll bring more liquidity and more players into the market. And so, you know, it's just a matter of time. I really think the transparency is going to grow over the course of this decade. Oh, you say you've got, obviously, the miners getting into these more esoteric metals, or at least historically more esoteric and small-scale metals. You've got the traders that's starting to be price transparency with the benchmark minerals and so forth. Do you see the you know the OEMs and so forth building out up the supply chain and, and building out procurement teams that are a bit more sophisticated than historically? What, what are they doing? Yeah, yeah. The short answer is yes, and I mean, for example, General Motors has has made moves in lithium by making an investment in a geothermal play in California. You know, in fairness, the project is not funded and not built and won't be in production for a number of years, but to me is a sign, a positive sign of, again, legacy OEMs moving up the supply chain, not relying on their on their battery suppliers in this instance for uh, supply. So, you know, you're starting to see more of that. Again, really aggressive Chinese players like CATL or BYD or Genfeng have been doing this. Genfeng is not an OEM, but, you know, they're pretty powerful, if you will, in the lithium space, but they have moved, they have all moved upstream and made deals between mining companies and the OEMs themselves for a number of years. Okay. And so now you're just starting to see Western legacy OEMs start to do the same thing. So you'll see some innovation there. You'll see some dollars come in. I should say you'll see some innovation, arguably in terms of contracts and how they're structured. It's pretty early days in that respect. But again, the takeaway here is that these legacy OEMs have realized that security of supply is the biggest issue, the biggest impediment. Yes, you have to have great battery technology and great looking cars, but you know, it all starts with with that upstream piece of the supply chain. And I think that's, you know, why we've started to see a number of these OEMs, you know, push, push upstream and, and make investments. It's a challenge as well, because all uh, strategic plans need the, the talent to execute on them. And it is a, a nascent market from a commercial perspective at the moment. And there's not many people out there who, who are infinite, you know, <clears throat> familiar in depth with these metals, the refining and chemical processes and the, the trading of them if organizations do want to build out these teams. That's right. And, you know, and again, these legacy OEMs have, a, have an internal combustion engine business that they have to manage and run while, again, shifting either willingly or in some cases not so willingly towards electrification. So they have to build out their supply chain. And to your point, they have to build out their intellectual capital, go out and find the people that can help them you know, find the raw materials, understand the battery chemistries and, and figure out at a price point how to approach consumers. So if you're a legacy OEM, I mean, it's a really, really important, critical time in your history right now. Yeah, no, I agree. So close listeners of this podcast will uh, remember that we had uh, Simon Moores on a couple of times at the beginning of the year. And as you say, since those episodes, like he predicted, Lithiums has had a, a big run up. And you know, people who invested in the various ETFs out there across this suite of metals have had a, a pretty good year. Just thinking of from an investment standpoint, both investing in building these supply chains and the, the role of financial investors to capitalize that build out, where do you see the opportunity? Because these have been, we had a big run up in rare, rare earth prices at the beginning of the last decade. A lot of investors have had their fingers burnt just because of the uncertainty around this space. Where, where are we at now? Is this now a, 
pretty much a conventional bet? And, and are you seeing investors coming in and wanting exposure? That's a great question. And again, we've talked a lot about lithium today. You mentioned Simon talking about lithium. Lithium is what I see with sort of my clients. Lithium is, is the most popular of the metals because, well, quite frankly, we talked earlier about substitution and threats around technology. I mean, you really cannot substitute lithium out of a lithium ion battery. Okay. And that sounds simplistic, but there are moves, for example, company in China, I think it's BYD has talked about a sodium ion battery in place of lithium ion because they don't want to deal with pricing volatility and so on and so forth. But it's, it's years away from any kind of shift there. So I think that investors are at least initially going to gravitate to topics that they can get a handle on and understand, get up to speed with quickly and are as transparent as possible. And when you look at battery metals, the six battery metals that I mentioned earlier, yes, copper is liquid and deep and nickel is so on and so forth. But those markets, I would argue, are not going to see the price appreciation or have not seen the price appreciation that lithium or cobalt has due to the electrification in the battery thesis. And that's why I would argue most investors are, are focused on lithium and cobalt. Not to say that you won't see pretty dramatic growth in nickel and copper, but again, copper is, what is it, a 23 million ton a year market? I mean, it's going to take a lot of copper to move the needle from a pricing perspective just with respect to electrification. So it's going to take a little bit longer there, but it's hard not to be bullish. So I don't know if that answers the question specifically, but that's kind of how I see <laughs> investors addressing it. I'll ask you the uh, which ETFs you recommend after we finish, but... Um... We've had people on talking about all of the commodities, right, have experienced this super cycle driven by a host of things, but not least redistributed policies and the energy transition. And it's interesting, as you say, that greenflation, what role will that play in the energy markets, in the metals markets? You know, when you've got record power prices and spikes in Europe, will that continue to support carbon pricing, for example, is a very delicate balance because everyone wants to be green, but you know, we'll see how that desire plays out in people's wallets and paychecks, you know, over the next decade or so. Yeah, yeah. There's a huge, you know, macroeconomic discussion to be had here, right? Around inflation and deflation or disinflation and what what force is going to be predominant depending upon where you are in the world. Probably fodder for another podcast, but that issue and the resolution of that issue, you know, in other words, is inflation in the in the global economy transitory or structural or permanent? That's certainly going to affect this thesis. And it could be negatively, right? If inflation does get out of control, we'll just have to wait and see. Yes. Well, it's been a fantastic discussion. Obviously, I imagine you have your uh, your plate full at the moment, but we'll put a, a link into uh, so people can find you. Great. After a decade of uh, looking at this space, you're you know you have a, a rare expertise that uh, yes, as I say, I'm sure is in demand. But certainly appreciated your time. Absolutely, Paul. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.